When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Slimini. I cover the Jets for ESPN. This is week 15 already. The Jets are 7-6. and six. They're back home to face the Detroit Lions in a virtual must-win game. We're going to talk about that matchup. We're going to review the 20-12 loss to Buffalo. And in the second block, we're going to welcome in former Jets general manager Mike Tannenbaum. I really want to get into the quarterback situation as it pertains to the offseason and some of the big decisions the Jets have to make and want to talk to Mike about Darrell Rebus's candidacy in the Hall of Fame. Mike, of course, the GM who drafted Rebus in 2007. For now, a quick State of the Union. Let's assess the Jets where they are after 13 games, and I think there's really two ways to look at this. There's the half half the glasses half full perspective and the glasses half empty perspective. Half full, look, They battled two 10-win teams on the road for 60 minutes and lost one-score games to the Vikings and Bills the last couple of weeks. Extended two playoff-bound teams to the bitter end and really put up a good fight. So that's the half-full perspective. That's a good takeaway that you have a team that can do that and be in those type of games. Now, the half-empty perspective is the fact that the Jets are 2-6 and Versus teams with winning records, that tells me that, yeah, they can go toe-to-toe with these teams, but they're just not good enough to take over the big boys on a consistent basis. They've scored only two touchdowns in the last two games. That's a concern. So that's the half-empty perspective. And it's interesting because I think the narrative has shifted this year. A lot of times we base narrative on preseason expectations, and the Jets were not expected to do much this year. I think the... uh, Vegas over-under was six wins, and they're up to seven, quite obviously. And so in that sense, they're overachieving. But somewhere along the line, the bar got raised. They exceeded expectations, so the landscape changes a little bit. So you really have dueling perspectives, dueling perceptions, rather. And personally, I lean towards the former. I think the Jets have outperformed expectations. I think it's important to keep in mind the big picture. But it's okay to be greedy and change. Guys, 11 years, playoff, drought. It's the longest active drought in the NFL. You guys want to be in the playoffs. You deserve to be in the playoffs. So clearly, I totally understand how this narrative has shifted during the year. But don't lose sight of what it was like going into the year. Now, let's talk about playoffs. Now, the Jets dropped here. They were 7th. In the AFC going into the week, they are down to ninth now. New England wins, L.A. wins, the Jets are ninth. I still think they got a good shot, though. Look at the strength of schedule. New England, they have the third hardest remaining schedule. Miami, 
who is uh, obviously a game ahead of the Jets. They have the ninth hardest remaining schedule. They still have to go to Buffalo and New England. I think Miami is going to fade a little bit here. The Jets are right in the middle of the pack. They have the 15th hardest remaining schedule. And L.A. has got a cupcake. They got the 31st remaining schedule, hardest. So that points to L.A. Chargers. But, you know, that's a hard team to figure. They're so inconsistent up and down week after week. So the schedule looks favorable. But with them, you never know. And I said this a few weeks ago, and I'll stick to it. I think this is coming down to the Week 18 Jets at Dolphins. I think the league will put that in prime time, either Saturday night or Sunday night. And it'll be an all-in game. Winning your in for the Jets. That's how I see this coming down. I think the Jets have to win three out of four, and I think they'll be in pretty good shape. I think this is a confident team despite the two-game losing streak. And I hearken back to Sunday, Robert Sala with these five words, quote, we'll see these guys again. And with that one quote, which he cleverly slipped into the end of his press conference, with that one quote, he changed the entire postgame narrative. Uh, it was a bold statement, for sure. He's never talked about the playoffs. He's always been a one-week-at-a-time guy. But clearly, there was a method to his madness. There was some messaging involved. He repeated, he, he essentially told the players the same thing just before meeting with the media. And that changed the vibe in the locker room. It was a fairly upbeat locker room. And after a loss to your division rival. And I think that was because of Sala. Sala instilling some confidence in the Jets after a tough loss to Buffalo, essentially telling the players, look, guys, you know, we can be a championship-caliber team. We're going to see these guys again. And all of a sudden, it changes the, the mood of the players. It changes the coverage of the game because instead of asking about Mike White and his beat-up ribs and how the Jets lost another close one and couldn't get it done in the fourth quarter. We're asking about Robert Sala and his, not a guarantee, of course, but his his prediction that the Jets will be in the playoffs and facing the Bills again. So it changed the perception. I think the, the a big part of the head coach's job in the modern NFL is to shape the perception. And uh, that's why Parcells was so great. He could shape the perception of the team. I think Robert Sala has come a long way in that area. He's pretty good at it now, especially in this market. And so uh, he did that after the game, and it changed everything. And I think you saw a really upbeat locker room. I only saw a few players in the locker room who were, like, down in the dumps. Now, Michael Carter, who had that key fumble, was pretty down, staring at his phone for a long time, just seemed to be – really, really down after that key mistake. And, you know, some of the offensive linemen, of course, weren't in the best of moods, nor should they have been after giving up that many pressures. And that's what I want to get into now, some areas where the Jets need to improve that would allow them to win at least three games here in the stretch and get in the playoffs. And one of them is pass protection. They allowed 21 pressures, nine, uh, eight quarterback hits on Sunday, obviously not good enough. And the Bills didn't even have Vaughn Miller. Can you imagine if they had Vaughn Miller? Connor McGovern, nine pressures. Nate Herbig, seven pressures. George Fant, six pressures. That's according to ESPN stats and information. That's way too many. I think Mike LaFleur has to do a better job of adjusting when there's that much pressure. The Jets are pretty much a five-man protection team. They had 32 dropbacks with a five-man protection. That was tied for fourth most in the league this week. 
uh, it's obviously their most effective passing uh, protection because you you know you get more guys out the pass routes. But man, when it's coming that hard, you got to adjust. You got to keep an extra man in. They only had 15 dropbacks with a six-man protection, and only four with a seven-man protection. Sometimes you got to do max protect when your quarterback's getting the snot beat out of him. You got to put an extra guy in protection, and they have not done that. They got to do it more often. Now, on the hit that left everyone talking and left Mike White in the ambulance going to the hospital was the Milano hit. They did have a six-man protection on that play. Buffalo rushed six. The Jets had six blocking, but they screwed it up, and they let him free. It was a free runner. Milano, full speed, right into Mike White's ribs. I don't know what happened there. Connor McGovern, for some reason, pulled to his left and double-teamed the three technique, Ed Oliver. he was So he and Tomlinson were double-teaming Oliver, and they left Milano all alone, right in the middle, clean path. It was like going through the easy pass lane with no traffic. Boom, right into Mike White. I'm not sure someone screwed up on that play. Can't blame the coaches because they did have the right number of blockers. It was just poorly executed. Another area where they have to improve is they have to start faster. In the last four games since the bye week, the Jets have scored only 10 first quarter points. That has to get better. Got to come out of the blocks quicker. I don't want to see any more passes to Braxton Berrios in the red zone. Look, he's a nice player. He's just not a red zone target. Maybe get more to Mims. I mean, Mims is six foot three. Try to utilize him more. He's been targeted only once in the red zone this year. I'd like to see more Ty Johnson and less Michael Carter. I think Michael Carter is a useful player, but for some reason he's just he just doesn't have that extra gear this year. Saw it more last year. Ty Johnson's got speed. At this point in the season, I want speed on the field. They have to get better in the red zone. In the last four games, they're only 27% efficiency. That's 30th in the league. Oh, by the way, Detroit is first over that span. So they got to get better in the red zone. And look, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Joe Flacco. He's a former Super Bowl MVP. I don't want to see him as the backup quarterback anymore. I think it's time to drop him down, and it's time to put Zach Wilson back into the two spot. Your backup quarterback's got to be mobile. you got to be able to avoid the rush because you're going to get blitzed. So as the backup come in, the defense blitzes. Flacco can't move. He cannot move. You saw it on Sunday, a strip sack. He just looked like a statue. Look, Zach Wilson's going through some things right now, but at least the man can move. He's a good athlete. I would make him the number two. I think there's a good chance he will be. Robert Sala on Monday, noncommittal about that. That tells me that he's strongly considering a change there, and he should. So I'd rather see – I mean, Mike White's going to start the rest of the way. I mean, I don't even think that's a question at this point, but I want to see Zach Wilson as the number two. Mike White's got to get better in the red zone. I mean, I know everyone's into the Mike White phenomenon now, but he's completing only 41% of his passes in the red zone. The league average is 55%. Got to get better in that area. I do expect him to play on Sunday. He'll probably be wearing a vest or a flak jacket to protect those ribs. And uh, But I do think he'll practice. The Jets expect him to be out there on Sunday. It's a virtual must-win. It's a huge December game at MetLife Stadium. This is what you wanted, right? This is what you wanted, so you would expect to see a very vocal, raucous crowd on Sunday at MetLife. (laughs) 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'd like to welcome in a uh, past guest of Flight Deck. It's like an annual thing now, but we have love having Mike Tannenbaum on. He's, of course, the ESPN front office insider. You see him on so many different ESPN platforms. Of course, he was an executive with the Dolphins and, of course, a GM for many, many years with the Jets. And he still can say he's the last GM to make the postseason for the Jets, which I'm sure is a source of pride. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, Rich, great to be with you and happy holidays to you and your family. And it's the same to you, Mike. And let's just talk about the current Jets, you know, seven and six on a little bit of a losing streak right now. Do you do you see them? How do you think their chances are of snapping this 11-year playoff drought? It's fascinating. You know, you know the first, like, goal you have is, are we going to play meaningful games in December? And they can make a big check mark in that box. And between, you know, we're, we're recording this on Monday, you know, the consequential game tonight, obviously they're Arizona Cardinal fans. And then between the Chargers and Miami, and I heard Rex Ryan speculate today that, the last game of the season in Miami could be a sort of like win and get in. And when Rex said it, I, I think there's some truth to that. Like, I, I think they're going to have a chance to control their own destiny, which is good news for the Jets. Yeah, that would be awesome. Uh, you know, Miami's, Miami's got a difficult schedule. They play Buffalo coming up this week on a short week. And so, uh, yeah, I could see totally that coming up to a Jet Miami showdown for a playoff spot. I want to ask you about, you know, the hot story around the Jets, of course, is the quarterback situation. Mike White, one and two now as a starter. Zach Wilson, inactive for the last three games. How do you think Robert Sala has handled this over the last few weeks? Well, I think making the decision, I think he got the hard part right. Um, best players play. Zach Wilson just simply did, didn't deserve to be out there. Now, look, that doesn't mean it's a death sentence for Zach Wilson. I would put him in an off-season program right now, meaning I, I make him run extra, lift extra, not from a punitive standpoint, but start getting better. Like, look at the development that Jalen Hurts has had, specifically his downfield passing. It's gotten a lot better. So Zach Wilson has a lot of skills he needs to work on. But I think publicly Robert Sollard could have handled things differently by saying, like, look, there's nothing to talk about here, guys. Like, on to the next story. Our quarterback's Mike White. we got a great backup in Joe Flacco. And Zach Wilson will have a meaningful chance to compete in 2023. Next question. He did not do that, of course. He he kept Zach in the equation, saying that my intent is to play him again. So, what that kind of me- what does that message send? Like, what kind of message does that send? It's it's an unnecessary issue because everything right now has to be how do we beat the Detroit Lions? Like, and I gotta imagine that Mike White's gonna be really sore this week. I'm sure he's gonna have minimal reps especially i would think like on wednesday assuming he's okay and any subsequent pet scan or cat scan comes back negative um and sometimes you know um rib injuries are a little tricky when you do subsequent tests you know you you can do an x-ray at the stadium that gets you clear to get back in the game obviously that's what happened but you know there's just too much ambiguity around that and now all of a sudden you know the people like the great rich Samini are gonna be out of practice charting you know every time like zach wilson takes a rep and it just becomes a bigger and bigger story because you guys are doing your jobs. 
And all of a sudden, if Mike White's out of practice, everything's going to be like, well, who got what reps? And it's unnecessary. It has to be about, hey, how do we stop Jared Goff? Amaron St. Brown's a great player. Eden Hutchinson, are we signing protection to him? No one else needs to worry about what Zach Wilson is doing. They have a massive game, and that's where the focus should be. Do you think based on what Mike White has done, now obviously it's a it's a one-loss league, and he's one and two, which is not great. Do you think he's uh, he certainly shown toughness? We know that. Would you come out and say, this is my quarterback for the rest of the year? I would say he's my quarterback until further notice. And again, I think, especially in New York, being there for as long as I was, Rich, like you want to minimize anything that takes away from the task at hand. And the best way to do that is just to candidly say, hey, like, there's no story here, guys. Like, Mike White's our quarterback. I'm not getting into hypotheticals. I'm not getting into next year. I'm not getting into trades. Mike White is our quarterback. No other story. We're moving forward. And we got a lot of work to do. Did you – now, you went through the same thing as the GM. You had a young quarterback in Mark Sanchez, highly drafted guy, and uh, had had some severe up to, ups and downs that first year. Kind of found his footing a little bit in the second year as you went to the playoffs again. Did there ever come a point in the first three years that you guys really thought about benching him? Yeah, I mean, philosophically, absolutely, you have to. Um, you know, he was taking away our opportunity to win football games. We had a really, really good team. Um, we won a lot of playoff games. It was based on a really good offensive line, a great defense, and a good running game. And we weren't going to have, you know, the proclivities of a quarterback turning the ball over, send us home. And I thought Rex handled the situation really, really well. Now, this is the question I was thinking about. I was flying back from Buffalo, and I'm like, this is the one that's right in Mike's wheelhouse. So it's a front office question. So the Jets, and we're looking ahead a little bit. We got Zach Wilson under contract for two more years on his rookie contract, and Mike White's an unrestricted free agent. If you're the GM, how do you handle this going into the offseason? Do you keep White? If so, how much? Do you, do you get rid of Wilson? Do you cut bait after only two years? To me, it's a fascinating question. Yeah, it's a fascinating question. Um, so a couple, I mean, a lot to unpack here. First of all, I don't give up on Zach Wilson. Like the quarterback is a developmental position. You know, Jalen Hurts is the next most recent example. Daily, like so is Mike White. Mike White's a better player today than he was last year. Um, Geno Smith for Jet fans is a great example. Now that's really extreme, but the mm -hmm. quarterback fundamentally is a developmental position. I would be concerned by Zach Wilson's lack of respect of his teammates. And that's probably a story not germane for your question. But I would try to keep Mike White because I think definitely that position is really important. In terms of money, you know, it's probably somewhere between, I don't know, Chase Daniel and somewhere in the mid-teens. Because if I'm Mike White, a third of the NFL is going to need a quarterback next year. And, Rich, that includes some non-obvious teams like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, maybe the Green Bay Packers. And then, of course, you get into teams like Houston and Indy and the Saints. I mean, there's going to be so many. You don't think Arizona is looking at their inconsistent play? Not that they're going to cut Kyle Murray, but, you know, Mike White's done a lot of really good things. And Chase Daniels made a lot of money not playing a lot of football uh, for a number of years. So I think he's going to have a pretty decent market. So if you were the Jets, you'd try to get him done in the mid-teens. So let's say it's like a three-year, $45 million contract. And you you can make that work salary cap-wise with Zach Wilson, of course. Uh, you know, he's got – it's a rookie contract, granted, but it's it's not insignificant amount of money. Yeah, it's too important not to. I mean, because you can't go into next year with a team that's um, improved in some ways 
um, with a question mark at the quarterback position. So even if it takes away from, you know, an offensive tackle or some other needs that they're going to have, I think it's too important not to address it. And the, and then just have an open competition next summer between the two of them? Uh, I don't even know if it's that. I mean, you, you go with, not, keep going with Mike White? Yeah, I think so. I mean, let's see how the rest of the year plays out. But Mike White does a lot of good things. I like his anticipation. I think he has good, not great arm strength. He makes some really good throws. That throw to Braxton Barrios, that that not a lot of people can make that throw. So if I'm the Jets, I'm really encouraged by Mike White, and I'm thinking long and hard before I ever take him out. Yeah, very interesting, interesting. And then uh, just keep Zach on the bench and just see how he develops. I mean, it, it happened to, um, what was San Diego, many years ago with Rivers and, and Drew Brees, but that was a different situation. It was a different climate with the salary cap and everything. Um, how hard is it to develop a highly drafted quarterback in the New York market? Yeah, it, it's it's difficult. And, you know, Eli Manning, Daniel Jones, Mark Sanchez, I mean, they're all different versions of, you know, the trajectory, Rich, is never going to just be perfect, right? There's going to be bumps in the road for all those guys. I mean, Eli won multiple Super Bowls, but there was times when people in this town thought he was a bust. Um, Daniel Jones, I don't think the Giants today know exactly what they have in him. He's a hard evaluation. Um, you need to have mental toughness. You need to have resiliency. And again, I think it's more about the intangibles that I would really take a long, hard look at with Zach Wilson. Wasn't a captain at BYU. And clearly, after the first game that he went in and played well, I thought the by language of Mike White's teammates said a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you alluded to that earlier. Just I want you to go back to that for just the way Zach, you said you worry about the respect he has for his teammates. Was it, was it strictly the comment after the New England game? Uh, yeah, and, yeah. Well, I think it's also the inverse, the respect that he has for them and the respect he, they have for him, meaning they were jubilant with Mike White and the success he had. Uh, and that was very, very apparent, Rich. Um, and that's a concern because the way you earn the respect of your teammates is to work your ass off. And, Mark Sanchez had a lot of bumps in the road. Those are really well documented, but no one ever questioned Mark's commitment or love of the game or the love of his teammates. And there was a likability to him because of that. And Kennedy probably earned him the benefit of the doubt well beyond just him being a top 10 pick. And that's what Zach Wilson needs to do. He needs to serve his teammates. He needs to be the first one in the last leap every single day. Um, you know, I was inspired today. I was reading an article about Sean McVay is flying to the combine from LA and at the time, Baker Mayfield is a college prospect, and he's flying on that same flight. And Sean McVay kicked out the person next to him. And for the next three hours, he picked the brain of Baker Mayfield, who was a college player, just so Sean McVay could get a little bit better. And that's the mindset that, candidly, I'd like to see from Zach Wilson. I want to see him fly to 25 different quarterbacks this offseason and learn one thing from everybody. It could be Joe Montana, Steve Young, Vinny Testaverde, it could be guys that failed like Jeff George. Go learn one thing from, you know, 30 or 40 different quarterbacks just to make you a little bit better. Because at the end of the day, Rich, that may be on the margins what allows you to succeed or fail in the NFL. Let me ask you this question. So, okay, you re-sign Mike White. You get a deal done that you like. Say it's three years, $45 million. All of a sudden, Zach Wilson's agent calls you and says, Zach wants to be traded. He doesn't want to be here if he's not the clear-cut number one starter. Then you're the GM. Then what do you do? I'll say, wait, I'll just copy and paste. Go work your ass off, get better, and everything else takes care of itself. 
be it here or someplace else, because you'll get an opportunity to play again because you're too talented. And there's only about 14 bonafide quarterbacks on the planet. But you're not going to tell us what to do. Um, we drafted you. You're under contract. And what you need to do is invest in yourself and get a lot better. Okay. Interesting stuff. I have a feeling we're going to be talking about the jet quarterback situation for many, many months as we go forward. But I do want to drill into one thing. Uh, Darrell Revis, uh, former jet corner star is nominated first time uh, in, in the hall of fame. He's, he's in the semifinals. I totally expect him to get to the finals. And I think he's got a pretty good chance of making it the first time. Mike, you are the guy that drafted Darrell Revis. You draft, uh, you drafted up to, you traded up to 14 to get him. So you obviously had a very strong conviction in him as a player. How high was he on your draft board to make that kind of move to go up and get him? Yeah, you know, ironically, Rich, it's a little bit about like uh, similar to the discussion we just had about the quarterback position. It was really supply and demand. We, we the year before, knew that we desperately needed a corner. And um, Aaron Ross and Leon Hall were the other two corners that we had first round grades on that year. Terry Bradway actually went to the pro day at Pitt called me from the airport. He's like, there is no way he's going to be there at 21. Um, we should just assume it's going to be Ross or Hall. He just had an incredible workout. And he was the guy, as we spent more time with Darrell, Darrell played in the old Big East, and there weren't a lot of great receivers that year when he came out. So we had to do a lot of work on him, and we all felt great about him, Coach Mangini, uh, Terry Bradway, myself. And I was able to reach an agreement in principle with a guy named Marty Herney, who's still uh, a senior assistant with uh, the commanders. And the night before, I said, hey, look, there's one player we would move up for. And if he's there, let's agree on what the compensation is. So on the draft, you know, when that if that moment happens, you're not going to ask for more picks or we're not going to try to try to trade up for less picks. And we had a lot of trust amongst each other. We had made a number of trades together, Rich. and we made the trade the night before. He didn't know who the player was. I said, we're doing it for one player. And at 14, we made the trade like that. And we were just thrilled that we could get him. And we were, we thought we were getting a great player. And candidly, you know, Darrell exceeded our expectations. I was talking to Darrell recently and he said when he came in, he didn't think he'd be a starter right away. He thought he might be like a nickel back or something like that. But of course he was starting from the moment he walked through the door. You guys had him. And did you, I mean, you know, you like him a lot because you gave up a lot to get him, but I mean, he became arguably one of the best defensive players in his era. How would you rate him in, in that era and just how dominant he was? Yeah. I, I, and I'm a thousand percent biased when I say this and I don't hide from that. I think he's the greatest corner in the history of our sport. I think he's better than Deion Sanders, Daryl Green. And the reason I say that is oftentimes you'll see a corner, he'll travel with the second best receiver and you'll double the opponent's best. But the way that Rex used him where he literally would go one-on-one -on -one with the opposing team's best receiver. And then it was 10 on 10 every place else. Like his value to us was so immense and he was better in practice than he was in games. Um, going to practice just to watch him to compete was so much fun. Um, you'd get some blowback on the, you know, most people say Deion Sanders or, or something, but you're right. Darrell, you know, Revis Island, you know, he had, he was like, he covered half the field basically for you. Right. I mean, and, and, uh, yeah, and the, in the other half. Right. And Rich, to me, the difference between him and, and Deion was Darrell was more physical. And he was a better tackler. I, I, I think Deion was, is an all time great. I don't take anything away from Deion, but I'm just saying as a complete football player, 
I'm going with Darrell. Of course, Darrell did cause you some headaches with his agents because there were some high-profile negotiations, uh, which became uh, immortalized on Hard Knocks and the Roscoe Diner. Every time I drive past the Roscoe Diner on my way to Syracuse, I always think of that. I can't not think of that. Um, what was what was that experience like? Because that was a pretty intense that was a pretty intense summer. Yeah, it sure was. Your your Syracuse background's coming out here, Rich. It um, always does. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that was really tough. You know, he was a great player, deserved a raise, and we spent a lot of months trying to figure out what was fair for both sides. And, you know, fortunately, we got a landing spot in there. Um, it's really hard sometimes. You know, a player of his ability and echelon, you know, deserves to be paid, you know, accordingly, but there is a salary cap and it doesn't pack everybody else. And, Rich, that, that, those were really, really, really hard conversations. You know, you work so hard. You, you try to be as prepared as possible. You try to be a good listener. Um, you try to be respectful to the other side. But gosh, like some deals are harder than others. That, that, that was a tough one. Have you ever been back to the Roscoe Diner? You know, I haven't. But gosh, you know, they should give me an omelet or something. Like, you know, we put them on the map and uh, hopefully they yeah. would treat me well if I ever get back there. Yeah, that w you did put them on the map for sure. How did you feel now? Uh, your credit, your ex, your successor traded Durrell the following, well, not the following year in 2012. Uh, were you disappointed at that? Did you wanted to see him finish his career with the Jets, or did, it was kind of like the understanding of the business of it? Yeah, you know, like I, I, I don't like to second guess, you know, the successors just because, you know, I, I appreciate the fact that there was a lot of things I could have done differently, and there weren't GMs that preceded me that, you know criticized me so you know you, you leave a roster and a whole bunch of you know good situations and things that aren't ideal and you know I guess that was what John Inzik you know he had to do what he thought was in his best interest and you know you sort of pass the baton from one person to the next and if Darrell does make it uh the vote will be on January 17th and when uh, when they whittle it down to the final five uh what would that mean for you personally Mike I'm sure you'll be in Canton if he's there um, you'll be invited, of course, and uh, Eric Mangini and all all that crew. Like, what would that mean for you personally, just to see a guy go in the Hall of Fame that you drafted? Yeah, very fulfilling. You know, it's it, it would represent you know a lot of people's hard work. You know, area scouts and coaches, and uh, a very you know I've been there a couple of times for a few other players and coaches, and it's it's very very fulfilling. It's it's hard to do, and uh, yeah, it would be very gratifying if that does happen. Of course, Kevin Mawai, Curtis Martin, guys, you were, you know, played a role in signing as free agents and, and, uh, you know, but drafting a guy is, uh, is a pretty cool thing because you, you're getting him from the beginning, you know, this homegrown type stuff. That would be, that would be really, we'll see. I think he's got a really good chance, but you never know what that selection committee, sometimes they do weird things. So we'll see how it goes. Hey, Mike, I want to thank you so much. I really appreciate the, the candor and the insights. I, I wish you were this candid when you were the GM, you know, you're a little, <laughs> a little, a little more buttoned up then, but uh, I, I get it. I get it. But thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. It's funny you say that. So Stephen A. Smith, our, our teammate at ESPN, Rich, when I used to go on with him at, on ESPN radio when I was the GM he used to call me Mr. CIA because I, I wouldn't say anything. So I guess I got to take that as a compliment, right? Well, you got to, you got to adjust to your role, right? So yeah. uh, now you're an analyst, you get, you got to analyze back then you're protecting a lot of uh, state secrets. So yeah. Great catching up with you, Mike. See you somewhere down the road. All right. Thanks for having me. Hey. 
And it's Twitter time. I asked for tough questions. Mike White tough. And you guys delivered. At Dan underscore Lorenz. Bam Knight's a great find, but I hold my breath when he's twisting and turning for extra yards. Over the years, I've seen too many fumbles happen as the running back can be vulnerable doing this. What are your thoughts? Have you heard anything? Talk about it. Talk about it. And Mike, you know, uh, Dan, Bam Knight has not fumbled yet, but it's interesting that you bring it up. He did have a fumbling problem at North Carolina State, had a few fumbles. Actually, his first year at North Carolina State in their fall camp, he fumbled a few times in practice and was so down in the dumps that he actually thought about leaving the football team. So he has dealt with fumbling problems in his past. It was one of the knocks against him going into last year's draft, but he's been good. I think he's adjusted his technique, and his ball security is good. At Mary, NYC1, Mr. Samini, uh, you stated a couple of weeks ago, I'm paraphrasing, that if Zach, if Sala puts Zach Wilson back in as the starter, there would be a mutiny in the locker room. Does that still hold true today? Uh Mary, absolutely, I think the team is firmly in Mike White's corner. You hear the sound bites. You see the quotes. Uh, they love the guy, his toughness, which I don't think he had to prove. He proved it anyway on Sunday by withstanding a, a, a just an absolute pounding against Buffalo, coming back in the game. Uh, right now, he can do no wrong in the eyes of his teammates. And, uh, yes, I think that would be a highly unpopular decision. I said this in last week's podcast, and I'll reiterate it. I think there's a really good chance Mike White goes the rest of the way. Uh, I think they're going to reassess this position after the Thursday game against Jacksonville. And if the Jets still have a chance, if they're still mathematically alive, which I think they will be, I think they'll continue to roll with Mike White. Next question, at C.T. Gibson, do you think Strebler might get elevated again this week to test his effectiveness in situational short yardage for first down plays, a la Taysom Hill? Uh, Well, that's interesting. They tried that earlier in the year when they elevated him but didn't activate him on Sunday for some strange reason. I think that would – it's an interesting thought because I think this offense needs a little wrinkle to help especially in the red zone. But I think it comes down to numbers. Uh, They could have some injury situations this week with Quinn and Williams. Might have to dress an extra defensive lineman. So it it becomes a numbers game, and I think it would be difficult to dress three quarterbacks for sure. So I, I wouldn't rule that out, but I think it would be very tough to do just from a roster management standpoint. Next one from at Rocket, at Rock Jet 12. Rich, the Jets have only a few million dollars of salary cap space next year, if they have tw- and they have 26 free agents that include notables such as Mike White, Greg Zerline, Bryce Huff, and a new contract for Quinn and Williams. How is Joe Douglas going to navigate this? Well, Michael, uh, well, they're going to have about $16 million under the projected cap. Now, of course, we don't know what the final cap number will be, but they're estimating about $16 million in space. Not as much, certainly, as they've been used to in past years. They did spend a lot last year, so less cap room. Look, they they can do some stuff to get room. C.J. Mosley's cap number right now is $21 million. Clearly, that will have to be adjusted uh, or else he'll be released. And they have guys like Carl Lawson and Corey Davis who could be potential cap casualties. Those guys right there 
would save about, I think, about $28 million. So there are ways to do it. The good thing is, from a Jet perspective, is they have fewer needs than they did in past preseasons. I think they, you know, Dwayne Brown, he's under contract. They can save $5 million by cutting him. Uh, I think that's a good possibility. Lake and Tomlinson's number is $17.4 million. I think they could restructure that contract. I don't think they'd cut him. So there are ways you can get more cap room. Next one from that, Ben uh, Liss. Ben Liss is saying, Rich, do the Jets have a heavy package? I don't recall seeing it once this season. Ben, that is a great observation. The Jets have not run a single play this year with six offensive linemen. Last year, they did it 34 times. I think Connor McDermott last year did it most of the time as the sixth lineman. In fact, he caught that touchdown pass near the goal line. Have not done it this year. Um, so uh, it's a great observation. But the question is, who would they do it with? I mean, right now their backups are Remmers, Feeney, and Duvernay Tardif. None of those guys I would consider good enough athletes to do that. Usually you want a guy who can move a little bit because he is an eligible uh, receiver. And so, I don't know. I guess Feeney has done it in practice, not in a game. So he would be the most logical guy to do it. Uh they haven't even used that much of three tight ends. They've only used 19 plays of three tight ends. For some reason, Mike LaFleur is averse to heavy packages. Uh, next one from at E. Jerlin. And the question is, how can the last pick in the draft, Purdy in San Francisco he's referring to, and countless other quarterbacks look competent right off the bench while Zach Wilson languishes for two years? Is it the player or the coaching? Did Mike White get good coaching while Zach Wilson didn't? Why should draft position matter over performance? Interesting question. Uh, yeah, Purdy's looked really good. I think you have to give a lot of credit to uh, Kyle Shanahan and that system. The Jets run the same system, and it's a quarterback-friendly system, and it seems to be working for Mike White. It hasn't worked for Zach Wilson. I think sometimes you just have to look at the player, and sometimes guys are not. Sometimes guys are overdrafted, and I think Zach Wilson was overdrafted, and I think the Jets might be coming to that realiza realization as well. Maybe Purdy was underdrafted. He was Mr. Irrelevant. So, yeah, I mean, it could be coaching. It could be the player, but I think in this case with Zach Wilson, I think it's a combination, but I think it's mostly on the player. He has to improve. At Cody underscore Awid. Uh, what's happening with a guy like Makai Becton during his injury? Is he on his own? Is he in the building? Uh, I saw how uh, Brees Hall gave Garrett Wilson his Rookie of the Year belt, but we've never seen Becton in any social media posts like that. Makai Becton is at the facility. It's a very weird dynamic, Cody, because he's there. I, I pass his locker every time I'm in the locker room, but we never see him. It's like he's a ghost, and that's just one of the kind of the mystical things of the NFL players can be in the building rehabbing injuries and we in the media never see them it's a big building we only have 45 minutes a day in the locker room and the player chooses not to be in the locker room during that period he's obviously not on the practice field so we never see the guy but he's there you know he's rehabbing his knee injury and the Jets obviously aren't going to put him on social media. They want to put Brees Hall on social media because he's a popular player who is having a really good year. I don't think they want to put Makai out front right now. And uh, so that's why that 
particular dynamic is occurring. Next one, at Queens Boulevard 19, can Mike White stay on the field? Those were tough hits, but he seems to get hurt a lot, i.e. Chad Pennington. Also, we're just automatically anointing him the starter for the future. He's 1-2 with a win over a bad Chicago team. Everyone needs to calm down. Well, regard to the durability, you're referring, of course, last year he had that forearm injury, which was a bit of a mystery, and it caused him to go out of a game against Indianapolis. And this year, look, I don't think many quarterbacks in the world could withstand the beating he took on Sunday. So I give him a lot of credit for being able to come back into that game, for wanting to come back in that game. Some guys would have just said, that's that's it, I'm out. So I don't think you can point to a durability issue with Mike White. As for anointing him the starter for the future, I don't think anyone's doing that, or maybe some fans are. I don't think anyone in the media is saying he's the quarterback of the future. And you're right. Only one and two, and he did beat a a very suspect Chicago team. So I think, in a sense, we're probably overrating him a little bit, and that's probably based on the fact that there's such a low bar for quarterback play because of the way Zach Wilson was playing. So anything above that low bar seems like a godsend. So you're right. Everything needs to be kept in perspective, but I do think he is an upgrade at the position and I do think the team responds to him. Next one from at a Bertram 59. And the question coming in here from uh, Tony is one second. Uh, both sides of the locker room are singing the praises of Mike White, saying they would go to war for him. Uh, stuff in the locker room is never said about Zach Wilson. Is this all praise affecting Zach Wilson's attitude? He looks uninterested when you see him on the sideline. You know, you know, that's a difficult spot because the camera catches him and that shapes the perception by how he looks at that particular moment. He's not in the game. He's the third inactive quarterback. So perhaps that is why he looks uninterested. I don't think anybody expects him to be hopping up and down, acting like a cheerleader on the sideline. Um, I think it is affecting him. Uh, you know, I, I I've talked to people who know Zach really well. Uh, I think this has been a very humbling experience for him. I think um, I think he's just going through some stuff mentally. You know, everyone's pointing to this physical reset. I think it's really about just mentally being humbled, um, gaining some perspective, and uh, and I think he's, this is a very difficult time for him. I mean, he's seeing the the videos of players wearing Mike White shirts and all the press conferences, people praising Mike White, that has to hurt. I know if I was in that situation, it would hurt me. So I can only imagine what he's going through. So uh, just a little perspective there on that situation. Next one from at Eddie underscore 9211. And the question from Eddie is, the defensive line has been really good, and Quinnen is probably the team MVP, but is it fair to be disappointed in Carl Lawson's season? One might argue he's been pretty mediocre, more uh, than uh, more than Bryce Huff is, perhaps the Jets' most explosive edge rusher. All right, let's look at the stats. Carl Lawson has six sacks, 19 quarterback hits in 493 snaps. Bryce Huff has three and a half sacks, seven quarterback hits, only 139 snaps. So you're saying he's only play, he's got half the amount of production, and really, he's only played like a quarter of the amount of the time as compared to Lawson. So you're saying Bryce Huff is more productive on a down-to-down basis. However, 
while that may be true in black and white, you have to consider the situation. Bryce Huff comes in the game, it's third and long. All he has to do is rush the passer. Carl Lawson is playing in the base defense as well as the Nichols, so he's responsible for some run defense. He can't simply just go off and rush the passer. He's got um, run responsibilities. So keep that in mind. Is, is Lawson having a great year? No. Is it a disappointing year? I wouldn't say disappointing. He's got six sacks. You know, he'll probably finish with something like eight, which I think is about what you would expect for him. Maybe eight to ten is probably a realistic expectation. He might fall short of that. So a mild disappointment. Now, he's got a 15.3 cap charge next year. None of his salary is guaranteed. So you say he's a possible cap casualty. They have Jermaine Johnson, Michael Clemens waiting in the wings for bigger roles next year. So I wouldn't rule out the possibility that Lawson has it becomes a, a cap casualty. Let's talk about Sunday, Jets, Lions. Detroit is favored in this game, uh, which is interesting. They've won five out of their last six. They're one of the hottest teams in the NFL. Jared Goff has really found a groove. He's gone uh, no interceptions in, gosh, at least a month the Lions have only three giveaways during that span, that six-game span. They've topped 30 points in four out of their last five games. The Jets have topped the 30 mark only twice all year. I think Detroit has one of the best offensive lines in the league, and there's a good chance, good chance, that Quentin Williams is not going to play because of that calf injury. The Jets are saying he's 50-50. The nature of that injury, just my gut, just what I'm hearing I would not be surprised at all if Quinnen Williams does not play. Detroit's defense is not very highly ranked, but they are playing better. Former Jets star corner Aaron Glenn is the defensive coordinator. Aiden Hutchinson, man, he's making a late run for a defensive rookie of the year. Uh, I know Sauce Gardner is, is right in that conversation as well. Hutchinson's got seven sacks, two interceptions. So their defense is playing better. Detroit's really, really in a good groove. But I'm going to pick the Jets in this game. I think the desperation of it all, uh, the must-win situation, the home field, not that the Jets have a great home field advantage, but I, I get the sense that the Jets are a really confident team, really worried about the Quinn and Williams injury because I wonder if they'll be able to generate an interior pass rush without him. So that's a concern. But I think the Jets have enough defense to slow down this Detroit offense. So I'm going to pick Jets 24-17. This is going to be a dogfight. A few weeks ago, a month or two ago, you'd say this looks like a really this looks like a, a good spot for the Jets, an easy win. Don't think so anymore. Detroit's playing really well, and so I'm going to take the Jets. Though I think they're going to eke out a win, and would not be surprised at all if if we see a, a big game by Garrett Wilson. I just have most of his games recently have been big, but I have a feeling. He could go off here in this particular game. So that's it for this week's Flight Deck. I want to thank our guest, Mike Tannenbaum, for stopping by on his annual visit. Thanks to producer Jeff Scopin. Hope you get to the game on Sunday. The weather looks good. It'll be a little chilly, but it's supposed to be dry and sunny. So it'll be great football weather, December football. This is what you wanted. So maybe I'll see you at the game. Enjoy the game, and we'll talk to you next week on Flight Deck.